My name is Reverend Campbell, and today I'm going to be reading uh, The Stanic Witch. Clearly, I'm not going to be getting through the entirety of The Stanic Witch tonight. Uh, and I'm seeing like a little bit of stutter in the video, so hopefully that does not persist. But hopefully it doesn't affect the audio if it does. So we'll just have to uh, have some fun with this, right? It's the new year, New Year's Day, 2020, literally the future, 2020. I graduated in mid-1990s, and so graduated high school. So thinking about existing into the 2020s was insane to me. I never thought I would make it to the age of 40, and yet I've surpassed that already. So crazy to think 2020. Um, and Happy New Year to everyone who celebrates <laughs> New Year's. I don't know if you do or not, or what you do. I was uh, invited to a couple different parties that I um, politely declined on both accounts because I wanted to spend the new year with my daughter and my wife. And so we played board games and uh, just sort of spent some time together, you know, laughing, having fun. And it was great. And I didn't have one drink, which for me <laughs> blows my mind and is very challenging. But it was still a good time. Uh, my version of the Satanic Witch is uh, a little bit old. <laughs> I know the content hasn't changed, but the foreword has. So the current version that's been released and has been out for quite some time is by uh, Magistra Peggy Nadramia, uh, if memory serves. This foreword is by Zena LeVay. So uh, people may not be happy about that, but this is the way I look at it. And let me know if you see it differently. Uh, there's a lot of really great satanic content that was written by people while they identified or were in good standing as Satanists or members of the Church of Satan as an organization. Since they have shown their ass and left does not change the fact that what they wrote when they wrote it may still be interesting and may have some bearing when reflected on in the time. I don't believe in redacting history. I don't believe in revisionist history. I just believe in reality on reality's terms, as I would argue most Satanists should. And with that in mind, I'm going to read this forward by Zena LeVay because it's in my copy, and that's that. If you don't like it, don't listen to it. <laughs> it's really that simple. Uh, let me give a quick shout out to everyone in this chat room. Uh, sorry, Stormy. I hope you can catch us later. William, it's always great to see you, my man. Panda Jam. Great name, man. The Dapper Devil, how you doing? Uh, Gerald, how you doing, man? Peanut Butter Toast, what up? Lucas, Jeremy, good to see you, man. CN Doll, hi, hi, hi. Uh, Zachary, good to see you, man. J-Dub, what up? Valeria, how are you? And everyone else who comes in after the fact. I hope I named everyone in there. Mr. Snuggletons. Uh, <laughs> I get a very creepy vibe from that name. Maybe because it's in all, in all caps. I just watched this really crazy uh, horror film on Shudder. And I can't remember the name. It's like Horror in Candy Town or some, some weird thing. It's on Shudder. But it's about these um, this uh, woman and her two daughters inherited a home from their aunt. They go out to the home and there's this candy van, much like an ice cream van for people who know what those are. A candy van um, filled with uh, this really disgusting, monstrous uh, trans, uh, I guess trans woman would be the way to, 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 
define it, and this really fat, monstrous dude. And they come in and, like, assault these three girls uh, and capture and, and sort of torture the two young girls after they've killed the mom. And it's a horror movie, so, you know, a lot of, you know, horror movie tropes. But it's like a psychological, plays on psychological trauma and where you go when you're in trauma. And so it sort of jumps back and forth between reality and this fantasy that one of these girls had to manufacture in her head. Uh, and it was very interesting. But for some reason, that all caps Mr. Snuggleton's immediately made me think of that. So let's hope it's not the case. You're a good person. <laughs> up and up. <laughs> you don't do any crazy shit. Uh, is my bathroom askew? This one or that one? Because that's straight up and down. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What does it mean? What could it mean? Is it Illuminati? <laughs> uh, this is going to be fun. So I, I've already done this with the Satanic Bible. And I performed it live. It took three different two-hour sessions to complete the Satanic Bible. And then I... And, and again, like that... This is all being recorded for a completely separate YouTube project. I just wanted to do this live, and I didn't want video in this other project. I just wanted the readings. And so I'm chopping these up, removing all of this live banter uh, for the actual project. I'm going to end up leaving these live versions on my YouTube channel, the one you're watching right now, uh, just in case people dig it. So, I don't know. You know, maybe... Maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you don't, I'm going to have each chapter with a timestamp on it in the description below, just like I did with the Standard Bible. So you can jump to different parts at your leisure without listening to this banter after the fact. But this is, again, it's going to take me a lot longer than uh, Standard Bible did. So don't expect this to be finished anytime soon because I'm not doing this every night. Maybe once a month or something like that, I'll do it. But I'm on no timetable. It's just whenever I feel like I can sit down for two hours and, and riff and read. That's really what it comes down to. I do genuinely appreciate that you guys find some interest in this. Um, and that hopefully in the chat room, you're going to be having conversations about the content of what we're talking about. And that's really the benefit of doing it in this format. Is that, one, I get to read a portion and then have a bit of a back and forth with you guys uh, about your thoughts and, and my own thoughts about what we've read. That's kind of fun. So, let's get into it, shall we? I suspect it's going to be a long one um, tonight. So, uh, sit back, relax. I've got my lemon ginger tea in my uh, Satan Me mug to help my throat, which feels fine. <laughs> Again, uh, older version. I don't have the complete witch version. I would like to know if anyone does have it. Is there an introduction to that? And if so, who did it? Who wrote it? I'd be interested. I think this introduction was in 88, 89. Okay, 89. And it was released, uh, it says here, the copyright was 1970. One thing I do love about this, uh, before I start here, is the inside cover. You get, uh, I don't know if it's going to focus or not. You get LeVay's synthesizer clock, which we're going to go through. And it's pretty interesting. And uh, with some uh, give and take, it's pretty goddamn accurate. Okay, here we go. Oh, wait. Check this. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. Satanic Witch by Anton Xander LeVay. 
to my two favorite witches, my daughters, Carla and Zena. Introduction. My career as a satanic witch began when I was three years old. May 23rd, 1967 marked the first legal public satanic baptism in history, one year after the founding of the Church of Satan. Since that time, I have appeared on numerous talk shows defending this ritual to people who have led who have been led to believe that Satanists sacrifice babies at the altar, mutilate and murder animals, turn their daughters into breeders and prostitutes, among other preposterous and unfounded accusations. It enrages me to think that this is all the public is ever exposed to in relation to Satanism. The time has come for Satanists to define what true Satanism is uninterrupted by yellow journalists and broken-nosed talk show hosts. My baptism was indeed the reversal of a Christian baptism. Instead of being dunked into a cold bath by a strange, sexless man to be cleansed of original sin, we celebrated man and nature as they really are. As I sat wearing the red robe my mother made me that morning, I toyed with the Baphomet amulet dangling around my neck. This image of the satanic goat handcrafted for me by the pioneering survivalist Kurt Saxon, a founding member of the Church of Satan. Imperiously, I surveyed the sea of black-hooded celebrants. It took me a few years to realize that some of them may have been more fascinated with the naked women sprawled on the altar than with me. The gothic strains of a Hammond organ echoed against the black and red walls. Calmly, chewing on the stick of trident fruit-flavored gum, I delighted in being the focal point of all this activity. My father, the high priest, raised his ceremonial sword and benediction. I felt a great sense of warmth and respect. How many people can honestly say they have this feeling at any point in their life? I have something they don't, I thought proudly, in keeping with the indulgent philosophy of Satanism. Since that night, I understood what it means to be a satanic witch a woman who makes full use of her feminine wiles. Throughout my life, I would replay the words intoned during my baptism. The many-footed walkers give to you the strength, the power of red fang and claw. All the madly dancing demons fill you with the lost knowledge of ancient ones. Small sorceress, most natural and a true magic magician, your tiny hands have the power to pull the living heavens down and from its shards build a monument to your own sweet indulgence. And with these others in the devil's fane, you so will cause the heads of men to reel and spin. You will fill them with desire. And so we dedicate your life to love, to passion, to indulgence, and to Satan and the way of darkness fame. Hail, Xena. Hail, Satan. In the flurry of publicity that this ritual garnered, I recalled one article as being particularly relevant to the underlying message of the satanic witch. In the August 16, 1971 issue of Newsweek, a sensationalist essay on Satanism, Evil Anyone, featured a phot photograph of my baptism with the caption, Building a Better Race. This caption gave insight to a previously forbidden theme that can only now be fully explored. The satanic witch, among many other things, is a guide to selective breeding, a manual for eugenics, the lost science of preserving the able-bodied and able-minded while controlling the surplus population of the weak and incompetent. 
Ironically, the same issue of Newsweek featured feminist Gloria Steinem on the cover exemplifying the new woman. It was in this period of gender confusion and bra-burning bravado that the Satanic Witch was first published under the title The Complete Witch. A diabolical textbook reinforcing traditional sex roles and sexist attitudes was viciously attacked in that shrilly militant androgynous atmosphere. As a child, I remembered feeling that period of time as being completely ass-backwards. Men were becoming emasculated, women were getting uglier, and adults in general were turning into the intermediate sex in the name of liberation. I'm sorry, into one indeterminate sex in the name of liberation. Want-to-be Jimi Hendrix's consorted with would-be Janis Joplin's. Unisex and flower power blurred the distinction between man and woman, creating a synthetic com composite that represented the worst of both genders. It was probably the worst time and place in history to be a budding satanic witch. Other, less gutsy witchcraft groups, treading on ground paved by the Church of Satan, came into the limelight and shaped the public perception on what constituted a witch. Those out for an ersatz, Sunday picnic type of witchcraft flocked to the white witchcraft and Wiccan groups. Church of Satan's witch workshops, on the other hand, encouraged women to exploit their own most powerful and compelling native resources to achieve their personal goals, with the new pressure to conform to nonconformity. A satanic witch has her work cut out for her. What my father taught at his workshops created true nonconformists and enchantresses who more resembled Tina Louise and Kem Novak than Margaret Hamilton, who would have been considered a hot dish in 1969. The Satanic Witch was designed for women who wanted more control over their lives. A woman could pick up a few Satanic Witch tips, put them into practice, and have immediate results. The book encouraged women to work with their femininity rather than against it. But to use all of the soft womanly qualities one has was to risk being thought of as weak and a traitor to her gender, to unreservedly manipulate a new breed of cowed, masochistic men was to be considered dirty and low down. Yet those who did were the strongest, most determined, interesting women I knew. I discovered at a very early age that there were facets to human behavior that could not be altered by fads and trends. As a little witch, I was the only girl in the first grade class who wore a dress. If one of the boys caught a glimpse of my panties, or lack thereof, and was the, as was the accidental case one May day, the Maypole fertility celebration of spring, word spread, and by recess I had a herd of boys stampeding after me in the schoolyard. Upon returning to class, I was greeted with dirty looks from my female peers who sported the most fashionable pantsuits and boots. I steadily acquired my manipulative skills through example and osmosis, since the satanic witch standards were ever-present in my home. I was always proud of my mother on my school's open house night. She openly flaunted her witchy attributes, and I could feel the envy of my friends as heads turned when she entered the classroom. If that year my teacher was a man, I was treated with the utmost respect. If my teacher was a woman, however, and her husband happened to be present, I was suddenly punished for things I didn't do. I began to apprehend the power of sex as a tool. I was 11 years old when I read The Satanic Witch for the first time. 
The Salvation Army, Purple Heart, and Goodwill thrift stores were the only places one could find a nice, tight, figure, flattering dress or skirt, so that's where I did my clothes shopping. I spent endless hours watching old movies or locked in my room, buried in magazines from the 30s, 40s, and 50s borrowed from my father. I was anxious to test some of the theories that I now knew more about. I developed early and was already busty for my age, so it was easy to exercise one of the secrets of indecent exposure by simply overlooking the button that would periodically pop open if my blouse was too tight. My best friend's brother and his pals were conditioned, like Pavlov's dogs, to have all eyes on my chest whenever I walked into the room. My friend teased me all the time, and I, of course, pleaded innocent. I gave more thought to choosing an image. I was naturally influenced by well-known role models like Mae West, Marilyn Monroe, and Lauren Bacall, but the one whose image I couldn't get out of my head was the 40s queen of kink, Betty Page. I was four years old when I first saw her in one of my father's men's magazines, standing solo in full dramatrix regalia. She had a cute, impish face that really didn't seem very appropriate to her costume, but as the saying goes, first impressions are the lasting ones. My father taught me how to crack a bullwhip at nine, so by the time I was 11, I was already attracting boys who needed to be told what to do, a recurring theme throughout my life. Seeming much older than my years and going out with guys who were older still, it should come as no surprise that I became pregnant at 13 and delivered my son Stanton at 14. I viewed the lifestyle of other teenagers with disenchantment, consequently with the responsibility of raising my son, came a freedom my peers were not privy to. I was now a woman. I was warned by distant relatives that if I kept my baby, life would be rough. No one would want to date me for fear of being coerced into stepfatherhood. But as the devil, devil's daughter, a teenager, with living proof of her carnal knowledge, I put the formulas from the satanic witch to good use. I made myself versatile enough to attract different people for different purposes. Everything from married lawyers and policemen 20 years my senior to juvenile delinquents and bikers who volunteered to kill anyone who bothered me. In the 70s, when in my mid-teens, I fully realized the destructive results of the woman's movement. The ruins manifested in everything from closed styles that encouraged asexuality or bisexuality, exemplified by entertainers like David Bowie and Cher. I would nearly vomit each time I was serenaded with horrible portrayals of modern witchcraft like ELO's Evil Woman, Eagle's Witchy Woman, or Santana's Gotta Black Magic Woman. By the time everything deteriorated to the lowest common denominator, the satanic witch was yanked out of the bookstores, never to be reprinted until now. As a satanic consultant, I have had to re-educate many a newcomer to the true meaning of witchcraft, a meaning opposed to the pervasive Wiccan good witch syndrome. I have even grown to dislike the word witch after years of having to tolerate its misuse by so many hypocritical fence straddlers struck between the God-fearing Christian ethos and their satanophobia. Women, as in every crucial time in our history, are the forefront of the cultural storm now breaking. The women who grasps the f and fully understands the mastery of the world inherent in this book's satanic teachings will usher in a true feminism, the liberation of the demonic in every woman. Zena LeVay, Winter Solstice, 88. I got something to say about this. I don't like, I don't think that this is a, a, a reaction of the times we live in. 
I don't like the idea of a girl. And again, she's writing this hindsight 2020. But I don't like the idea of a girl flaunting herself or being um, uh, presented with uh, images or exposure uh, to pornography or ideas in this book at the age of 7, 11, and 13. That's uncomfortable for me as a father, as a human being, as a, a man with sisters. That's too young in my opinion. I have to accept that I'm not everyone's parent and everyone does things on their own, whatever. Um, if my daughter at 13 comes home pregnant, I will be fucking furious. And if she's flaunting around the satanic witch, I will be forced to hold back a slap because that's too young. I don't care what age you're in. Too young. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, and I think you can argue in hindsight, since she wrote this in hindsight, that um, she was certainly not a, uh, a, a full form, fully formed thinking human adult woman at 13, as she uh, claims to have been, or the lifestyle maybe, uh, not up here, definitely not. And due to the reality of <laughs> human physiology, no 13-year-old is fully formed uh, at that age in their head. Their brains are not fully formed. You know, that you're looking, the reality of it is around 18 to 22 before your brain is fully formed and all the synapses have uh, made their way to, to where they're going to be. So I don't like that introduction. I've never liked that introduction. I think it not only cheapens the idea of uh, a powerful witch to only being a child, and it demeans the reality of the complexity within this book to just a kid's book. I don't know any kid who's going to sit through and read this. I, I know very few humans, adults, that sit through and read this. So a child even more. I don't like the idea. And this is something that I grew up with. Whenever I told someone that I was a Satanist, they're like, oh, you'll grow out of that. Because the assumption is only little kids, only rebellious teenagers could ever find any connection with this religion. And that's perpetuated throughout all of uh, popular media. But it's bullshit. The truth is, we may connect with it initially at that age, but if you're a Satanist, you can't help it. This is a lifelong thing that, that is just a part of who you are. It's less you identifying as a Satanist as you recognizing yourself as being a Satanist. And the difference therein is incredibly massive. It's the difference between Halloween and the Adams Family. One, you're dressing up because it's fun for a night, and the other, this is kind of the way you live. This is who you are. And, and understanding that difference is really, really important, especially if you're going to be tackling ideas that are as complex as lesser magic um, within this, this book. So, yes, every human being has different ages or different moments when they are fully understanding the idea of sex and sensuality and manipulation of other, you know, genders through their own sex and sensuality. Uh, 
she was way too young. And for anyone to read that preface and think, I think she was right. At 11 years old, she was wearing buttons that would pop off to show to her 11-year-old classmates, and they somehow understood, and then fawned after. Give me a break. 11-year-old boys don't, they're more interested in cowboys and Indians than they are the sex of a woman. And even then, when they do, it's definitely not an 11-year-old they're chasing. It's the teacher that happens to be super busty, or it's the, uh, the woman on a TV show that they've been watching. It's, it's a completely different mental understanding of sex at 11 for boys than it is for girls. And of course, this is, you know, just a baseline. There are variations, but it's ridiculous. So, all right, it looked like it cut off there just for a second. Uh, how about we just go on? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I might have a, a little bit of interference here. Let's try this. Prologue. After reading a few pages of this book, many will feel it to be a treatise on man-catching. This is understandable enough as considerable emphasis is placed on the mundane and occult manipulation of men. But there is a good reason for this. Whether or not a witch needs any man other than the one she has currently chosen is relatively unimportant. What is important, however, lies in the fact that if a woman wants anything in life, she can obtain it easier through a man than another woman, despite women's liberationists' bellows to the contrary. The truly liberated female is the complete witch, who knows both how to use and enjoy men, any bitter and disgruntled female can rally against men, burning up her creative and manipulative energy in the process. She will find the energies she expends in her quixotic cause would be put to more rewarding use, where she to profit by her womanliness than by manipulating the men she holds in contempt while enjoying the ones she finds stimulating. It's pretty hard to lose using such tactics. If she really prides herself on being a woman, she will take full advantage of her station, and the advantages are surely there if she is bold enough to employ them. A worthwhile man can be your greatest ally, and even one that is a pompous ass can sometimes be your most productive quarry. Even a man who is virtually devoid of any attributes other than his overt lusts for you can be transformed into a bit of witch power for yourself. One of my greatest mentors was the late Sir Basil Zeroth, Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, Knight of the British Empire, Procurer of Beautiful Women, Arms Merchant, Satanist, and the original Daddy Warbucks. Perhaps Sir Basil best understood the formula that I wished to impress upon my wishes. Man to man, his advice was brutally simple. Women are the best allies. They can make a man do what you yourself alone can never convince him is the best policy. For every man there lurks an ideal pattern for a woman. Most men do not even know she is there. She must be served, however, and in order to complete a man's need to fulfill the woman within him, he will see a woman that walks the earth and not recognizing that woman to be the counterpart of the one within will be compelled to her. If you know how to imitate the woman a man carries within himself, you may have anything you wish that another human can supply. 
I'm going to pause there for just a second because he's diving right in with that prologue. He's diving in to the LeVay synthesizer clock and your apparent self, your demonic self, and your true self right off the bat. And I think if you don't eat, if you don't dip your toe in the water to see it, that it's in fact warm and it's something you can tolerate, that can be a very confusing initial introduction. <laughs> like, if you don't know the concepts that he's not even gotten into yet, that idea is very, very confusing. Um, let me give a quick shout out uh to the people here dog how you doing diva dave d what up man brad how you doing man uh sean how are you let's see melanie how are you okay oh gabriella hey <laughs> the mac geek what's up man all right so the test of the 13 factors before reading this book, take this test. It will tell you whether you have the ability to practice the art of witchery. Your present degree of competence towards a career in the practice of the devil's game can be defined by answering 13 of the following questions. Only 13 out of 20 of these questions have any valid significance. The other seven have no bearing on your ability. Choose the questions you will answer carefully, as only 13 count for possible answers. After you've decided which questions you are going to answer, check yes or no in the square provided. When you've finished answering the 13 questions you have chosen, turn to page 266 for the answers, which must be held upside down and read in a mirror. 1. Have others ever referred to you as a witch? 2. Do you have an ancestor or relative who was or is a witch? 3. Are you better off today than you were a year ago? 4. Do you feel you have supernatural forces working against you? 5. Is black your favorite color? 6. Do others seek out your company without you trying? 7. Do you ever have fits of jealousy? 8. Have you experienced what you would consider ESP? 9. Are you strict in your attention to feminine hygiene? 10. Do you find others going along with what you want of them? 11. Were you born under any of these signs? Leo, Scorpio, Pisces. 12. Have you ever been considered cheap? 13. Have you experienced anything of a myth mystical nature while using drugs? 14. Do you have an interest in movies and TV shows with an occult theme? 15. Do you often wear undergarments that are black in color or of a flashy nature? 16. Are you accompanied in commonplace... Oh, I'm sorry. Are you, are you accomplished in commonplace skills? 17. Would you consider yourself to be intellectual? 18. Is there anything you would fear as a consequence of your practice of applied witchery? 19. Do you find that men often make passes at you? 20. Do you wear any kind of amulet or charm that has occult significance? If you have a score of seven to nine correct answers, there is hope for you as a competent witch. If you're scored 10 to 12, you are well on your way to sorcery. And if you got all 13 possible answers correct, you are truly gifted. I am not going to go over that uh, page on uh, 266. 
But I do find it incredibly interesting. It's right there, upside down for you people to look at. Uh, I do find it interesting because, again, like some of these have nothing to do with being a witch. Some of these have nothing to do with lesser magic. But he just put them in there to see if you would pick it up. And what I think is so fascinating is that different individuals are going to have different understandings of, uh, of each of these questions on, on their bearing as being a witch. And because this is written by the doctor, his answers are going to be the pertinent ones, not your own. And that's why I think there's that sort of sliding scale on whether or not in line with the way he perceives witches to be, you are ready or good enough or on your way and, you know, or whether you have any hope at all. Okay, so this is the first book I got practical understanding from because my own experience with men so lined up with what he has to say. I just didn't have the vocabulary for the deal was until I read this. And that was a dog. Interesting. Yeah. Um, not me. <laughs> this is something that I think people need to understand because, again, this is really targeted towards satanic witches. Uh, but I've found invaluable information herein. Like, incredible information. Not only in ways of understanding the satanic witch, because that's what I'm attracted to, and that's what I, I, I just love that counterpart. Because, again, within me is a satanic witch. And, you know, as, as everyone has their sort of true self, demonic self, and apparent self, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, but in able to fully understand who you are, you have to understand different genders. Because you're going to discover that you're going to fall in line somewhere with some ideas that are found in this book. Uh, and, of course, if you ever want to work your way out or realize lesser magic is being played on you, you have to know what it is. <laughs> so it just makes sense to me that you would, you would read this as a satanic warlock. It is very important. And, and again, you as a man can employ the majority of all of the content herein as well. You may change it a little bit, and you may not. But I have had a little button pop open from time to time. <laughs> no, maybe not that one. Um, all right. What is your guys' thoughts about this so far? I, I, I really want to know. Is this something that you find any value in? Outside of the idea of, you know, this is a volume of satanic wisdom. But practical use. Have you read it and employed anything herein? Do you look at yourself differently after having read it? And we're going to get into the sections here about the personality synthesizer clock where you really have to do a little bit of introspection to figure out if there's any value for you as an individual. But I want to know. I'm curious. And I think it's going to help other people who are watching this at a later point who have never even bothered to pick this up, who may be a little curious and are just looking at the comments in the live chat where they say, oh, these men and women and whatever other gender identities have found value in this, maybe uh, maybe I could too, you know? I think it's worthwhile. It's worth looking at. All right. Um, just call her Noodle. Is that, Brad, is that your girl? Okay. <clears throat> Let's do this. Oh, that's your daughter. Hi, hon. 
Are you a witch? Be the first on your block to amaze your friends. Johnson Smith Company catalog. 1929. We are living in the only period in history in which it is considered fashionable to be a witch. Given this complete public acceptance, an understandable tendency towards fadism develops. The once stigmatized label of witch has become a title of positive intrigue and has attained a status never before realized. But this marks a considerable transition in the image of the witch. The biblical warnings against witches were such that it meant torture and death for anyone accused of the heresy of witchcraft. The Middle Ages was the worst period in history for a person to be accused of sorcery. However, the only similarity to today's witch is the glamorous appearance that some of the condemned women of the witch trials possessed. It is quite obvious from the charges leveled against many innocent girls that their only crime was in being sexually appealing. Most of the beauties who suffered at the hands of the Inquisitors were tormented because they refused to succumb to the right people or were too quick to give in to the wrong ones. Many men who lusted after such women became so guilt-ridden that they would denounce them out of fear that they would fall from grace in the eyes of God. Of course, the most successful witches were usually sleeping with the Inquisitors and were never even considered to be witches. Successful as they might be, however, they could never openly take pride in their witcheries, for to do so would mean certain death. Centuries later, the image of the witch was held exclusively by the old crone, who might not have feared arrest or persecution, but certainly wasn't the type to be invited to cocktail parties. Only the ugly, grotesque, solitary, and unpleasant carried the name of witch. This tradition was so strong that to be referred to as a witch was an insult only a few short years ago. Now, countless women are coyly boasting about being witches. In fact, one of the reasons I decided to write this book was the prevalence of what sociologist Marcello Truzzi refers to as the nouveau witch. With so many witches roaming the earth, how can one tell the real ones from the false? It is as if everyone who ever removed a splinter from their finger were to go about proclaiming themselves surgeons. Surely there must be a means of defining and maintaining standards of witchcraft. Granted, there are no universities which are accredited in giving degrees and enchantments. Even if there were, such places of learning would soon, uh, which soon there might be. The same problem of proving one's worth would remain as with any liberal arts course. The art student who has graduated from college with honors can usually land a good commercial or teaching position upon leaving school, but not necessarily paint any better than an artist who has never come near an art class, but still possesses the highest artistic ability. In any pursuit which deals with talents as an important factor towards success, academic or official licensing is of secondary importance. What is of prime importance is the result which is obtained through the use of the medium and how it is received by those to whom it is directed. Pedigrees are of questionable importance when the dog is sleeping while the burglar makes off with the silver, nor do they help your legal defense when the mailman is bitten. Likewise, it is useless to have a grandmother who can read tea leaves and a Scorpio rising in your chart if you can't land a boyfriend, keep a husband, get a job, or avoid pregnancy. 
The most common credential used by modern witches is inherited ability, followed closely by proper astrological signs. Names and birth numbers of a suitable nature are often employed as testimony to one's ability as a witch, and an exaggerated assumption of ESP powers sustains many a would-be witch's delusions of magical prowess. Other claims to fame include unobtrusive birthmarks and blemishes that may be used as evidence of a witch's mark, usually conditions at birth, such as the presence of a veil and the ever-present revelation of older and wiser and shrewder gifted readers who extremely profitable stock and trade is to tell young girls of their latent magical powers. With all these apparently sound reasons proclaiming one's right to witchcraft, small wonder there are so many witches around nowadays. What then is the definition of a true witch? I don't see any reason to readily discount the movie and TV image of the witch, because I think whatever popular image is most flattering should be utilized and sustained whenever possible. People will believe what they want to believe, and the current image of a witch is the most intriguing and glamorous that has yet to appear. Just because every girl who calls herself a witch cannot do the things witches are seen to do on television shows does not mean that she should not take advantage of the public's assumption that she can. To be sure, there are many who view the witch as a member of an old and pagan religion, more concerned with her beliefs than with her powers. No matter how many words have been written by the spokesmen of the white witches, however, it is apparent that the public likes their witches to be cast in a fairly standardized image, and this is what it is. 1. The witch is a woman. Men are called warlocks. 2. The witch is usually a wretched-looking old crone with warts on her nose or an extremely sexy girl. 3. The witch has made a pact with the devil and through rituals dedicated to him, gains her power. 4. She is often blessed with a family heritage of sorcery, in one form or another. 5. She has the power to get what she wants. 6. She has the faculty to cloud men's mind and make simming, simpering idiots out of them. 7. She destroys her rivals through the use of curses, thrown without mercy. 8. She has an intuitive capacity which allows her to size up a given person or situation before she proceeds further. 9. She has a familiar in the form of a pet. 10. She knows formulas for various concoctions which she gives to visiting gentlemen. In these qualities will be found a composite picture of the modern witch, whether she be beautiful or ugly. Now. Let us explore each ingredient and see how really accurate this description can be and how you can become a witch in this image. 1. The witch is a woman. Well, you are a woman, so there's no problem here. 2. The witch is either a wretched old crone with warts on her nose or an extremely sexy girl. Are you ugly? If so, you qualify. If you're not ugly enough to make people stare at you, then you're able to be an extremely sexy girl. You'll just have to sacrifice some deep-rooted notions and violate a few taboos. Which brings us to 3. The witch has made a pact with the devil, and through rituals dedicated to him, gains her power. In order to be a successful witch, one does have to make a pact with the devil, at least symbolically. She must recognize her very earthly heritage, and realize she is working on that level at all times. 
She must worship the Luciferian element of pride within her, knowing full well that it is her honest ego that impels her to learn the arts of enchantment in the first place. She must also realize that happiness and self-satisfaction in this life are the reasons she has become a witch. A strong and non-hypocritical realization of this factor, occasionally pondered, is a potent ritual in its own right. 4. She is often blessed with the family heritage of sorcery in one form or another. Everyone inherits something from their forebears that can be applied as a useful legacy. If your parents were good-looking, you may have inherited their looks. If they were ugly, you may have a fearsome appearance, sometimes kindly referred to by friends or relatives as distinctive. Someone along the line may have had a particular talent in music or art which you have received. Even if you don't know who your parents were, you still will inherit whatever qualities run concurrent to confident sorcery, but not be bogged down by assuming stereotyped but useless legacies. 5. She has the power to get what she wants. Through the pauper balance, the willingness to temporarily adapt to certain situations, rudely called prostituting oneself or selling out, and a little patient, uh, many are witches without even knowing it. 6. She has the faculty to cloud men's mind and make simpering idiots out of them. If you have the guts to follow the advice contained herein, this should be the easiest part. <laughs> 7. She destroys her rivals through the use of curses thrown without mercy. The only way a curse can be thrown is without mercy, and the power of the curse is most effective. If you are without guilt at having feelings of animosity, there is no reason why you cannot throw a curse and make it work. 8. She has an intuitive capacity which allows her to size up a given person or situation before she proceeds further. Those who cannot put their finger on the reasons they feel as they do about certain people or situations, but nevertheless are guided by such feelings, call it intuition. Alas, in altogether too many cases, intuition turns out to be wrong. When we cease depending on half-baked intuition and combine intuitive thinking with certain conscious formulas for recognition, we can literally keep one jump ahead of what is about to happen. She has a familiar in the form of a pet. An animal, bird, snake, fish, or even plant that tells no tales is an essential ingredient towards the smooth-running living conditions of the successful witch. 10. She knows formulas for various concoctions, which she gives to visiting gentlemen. Well, if you haven't guessed already, this means that if you can't cook, you'd better learn. Except in the case of the very masculine witch, who would specialize in kitchen-oriented males, Commonplace skills are essential. 7. Oh, I'm sorry. The Myth of the White Witch Aside from the tricks of the movie or TV witch, usually accomplished with special camera techniques, there is no reason why any girl who puts her mind to it and learns the proper methods cannot become a full-fledged witch in accord with the popular conception. Only those who either do not know the means to success or are too stubborn to use them, once having been told, will persist in defining themselves as witches by using the sanctimonious definitions of so-called white witches working for the benefit of mankind. There will always be those who, furtively desiring personal power but unable to do anything about gaining it, will devise their own definitions of what a witch should be like, seeing to it, of course, that their definition fits themselves. 
the White Witch is the byproduct of an emergence in England of an above-ground witchcraft interest at a time when witchcraft was still technically illegal. In order to pursue the craft, with harassment and prosecution, the spokesmen for witchcraft attempted to legitimize and justify what they were doing by proclaiming the existence of white witchcraft. White witchcraft, it was stated, was simply a belief in the religion of the old wise ones, or Wicca. The use of herbs, charms, and healing spells was only employed for beneficial purposes. It was to be believed that the kind of witches that were dangerous to have around were black witches. These were supposedly evil in their pursuits and worshipped Satan. The fact that the good or white witches employed a horned god in their ceremonies was justified because it doesn't represent the devil. Of course, no one admitted to practicing witchcraft ceremonies of any kind. Admitting that was associated with witchcraft was pursued in the name of study or research. This was the climate in England between 1936 and 1951. With the repeal of English witchcraft laws in 1951, all of the underground witches started creeping to the surface, and as their eyes became accustomed to the light of sudden legality, they ventured forth. Unused to such freedom and heavy with the stigma of illegality, they went about shouting white witchcraft even louder than ever, as if expecting at any moment to be snared by a heretic hook. About this time, interest in the occult was becoming popular in the United States. So, naturally, attention was focused on the British Isles with its rich heritage and all matters ghostly and fanciful. As might have been expected, newly emerged English witches saw the U.S. as a fertile stamping ground of safe recognition for their witchiness. Concurrent with the first post-war writings out of England came the first diplomats of witchdom, and America was more than curious. Having no other literature but Margaret Murray, Montague Summers, and Dennis Wheatley to read, it was assumed that the new revelations by Gerald Gardner and his followers were the straightest stuff available. White witch became a definitive term, and thousands who wouldn't touch the practice of witchcraft with a ten-foot broomstick found a conscious redeeming opportunity to follow an art by using the new rules of the game. Regardless of what these people would like to believe, the image of the witch has been stigmatized for centuries. All witches were considered to be agents of the devil, antagonistic to scriptural teachings, and a direct part of the dark side of nature. And there is always a relative outlook as to what is good and what is evil. Once witchcraft emerged from its all-evil state into neutral territory, a differentiation was bound to occur. The righteous of course, will always wear the mantle of good, white light, spiritual, and varying shades of holiness. An analogy might be made concerning white and black witches. Let us assume that warfare had, for centuries, been called wholesale murder, and the men who fought called murderers. One day, it was decided that there was something quite noble and dignified about this old act. Maybe they succeeded. Maybe they succeeded in saving their homeland from that which threatened it. They might have even had a scholar among them who traced the origin of the word murder to an ancient word which meant mother. But the fact remained. Murder was still a negative term in the public's mind. So, instead of simply reveling in their subsequent acceptance by the public, their guilt, brought about by long years of stigma, necessitated their place of the word good in front of murder and a sort of self-reassured uh, as a sort of self-reassurance that they were doing the right thing. 
whenever a girl becomes a white witch, you know she's either kidding herself or is much to learn. The drug scene. Another of the most commonly employed self-convincers in the world of witchcraft is the drug scene. After a formidable productive experience under the influence of a hallucinogenic drug, there is often a profound assumption of mystical or magical power. The assumption is, of course, confined solely to the user of the drug, but let no one attempt to deter her from her chemically produced reality. If one has sought magical power or mystical wisdom and has experienced an extremely sound enchantment through the use of the drug, chances are she'll look no further. If she does explore new facets of occultism, however, no experience will quite come up to that which the drug has supplied. So, therefore, the drug will become the criteria-producing device for her self-assumed prowess. Let me state categorically at this point that drugs are antithetical to the practice of magic, as they tend to disassociate the user from reality, even though he oftentimes thinks himself closer. It is true that many drugs expand the consciousness, but in doing so, they make it much more difficult for a person to become selective in thoughts and motivations. In magic, it is imperative that one be able to narrow down his various awarenesses to one compelling desire towards which a ritual is performed, when the use of drugs has allowed the mind to run rampant over such narrow-minded traits, something very meaningful is lost. The ideal witch must be able to be singular for purpose when the need arises. And dogged narrow-mindedness has its just place in the ritual chamber where stubborn emotion must hold forth. Any soma-producing chemical or device negates such an uptight quality. In reality, the more uptight one is when he enters the ritual chamber, the better. With a lack of hang-ups comes a lack of strong emotional response to the various situations often needed to generate the force ne necessary to throw your spell. The free, dreamy-eyed, beautiful person type is often the first to call herself a witch, but actually is the antithesis of the real thing. An argument might be given that it is okay to use drugs, but not when one is casting spells. This is like commenting on the problem of drunkenness and alcoholism by saying it's all right to drink, but not when you're driving. There are many people who are rotten drivers who never touch a drop, and conversely, many whose lives are ruined by booze who ride buses. The effects of drugs upon the witch are only definable by the success shown by a witch outside her drug-oriented peer group. A common phenomenon nowadays is the prevalence of witches involved in the drug scene. The prowess claimed by such would-be sorceresses centers around their in-group activities and not the outside world. One such witch approached me recently, saying she had just performed a great magical working. It seems she had driven her car on the freeway after taking a rather large dose of LSD. Feeling very magical, she drove across an oncoming six lanes of traffic with sufficient magical power to bring each of the speeding cars to a halt. She was totally convinced that her abilities as a witch were responsible for her immunity. When I told her that her safety had been ensured by the quick reflexes and sound brakes of the other drivers, it went in one ear and out the other. Another young witch had been at a social gathering where marijuana in conjunction with various drugs was being used. 
My informant stated emphatically that during the course of the evening's activities, she had seen someone who glowed with such a radiant aura that she approached him with the magical intention of lighting her joint from his radiance. She swore that as she held her marijuana cigarette up to his face, it miraculously glowed alive. Now I have heard all the old gags about one drunk lighting a cigarette from the glow of the other drunk's nose, but never thought I'd hear its contemporary parallel told with a straight face and as pretentiously serious account of the powers of witchcraft. The confusing thing about all of this is that we are now living in a climate of occult popularity where such experiences are not relegated to the wards of mental institutions. For those whose mental imbalance is drug-induced and even temporary, a fertile environment for such periodic miracles exist. It is but a short step to the employment of such magical experiences towards a pedigree for witchery. Combine the effects of drugs with the search for a religion to supplant one which has never held much meaning, and you will arrive at a need to believe, which is strengthened by readily obtainable miracles which can ultimately fulfill that need. Hence, an unswerving faith in magic can be readily manufactured even as it was accomplished by the same means by the same shamans of primitive societies, but not a proficiency in the practice of magic. If you are to be a successful witch, faith helps, but it takes a good deal more. If, however, you do not plan on practicing witchcraft but only believing in it, use all the drugs you like. The Married Witch versus the Single Witch It would be assumed that to be a witch, one would function better in an unmarried capacity. After all, who ever heard of a witch who was married before a certain television show came into being? Not so. State all the rules of witchery. This is no reason why, uh, there is no reason why a successful witch cannot be married. Some of the most seductive enchantresses have both husbands and well-behaved offspring. Aside from the security a sound marriage can provide, it is obvious that a married woman exerts a much greater fascination than her single sister. The reason for this is the law of the forbidden, which can be discussed later and is, after all, the reason you are reading this book. Unless a witch wishes to appeal through the use of a virginal image, the more experienced she appears, the more desirable she becomes. Very few men will be compelled towards virginity in a woman, except as a flip to the ego. The concept of virginity as a desirable value is viable when one thinks of the sacred love and enduring romance. The average male, however, is an animal first and a romanticist second. For this reason, he will always be tempted by the woman whom he considers to be of easy virtue. Whether or not a woman is of easy virtue is unimportant when stating the requirements for the witchhood. What is important resides in the hope, the assumption, the promise of sexual availability and experience. If the woman who is known to be single can be assumed to have indulged in sex, then the married woman surely must know what it's like. It is precisely this advertising of one's sexual knowledge that gives the married witch a certain appeal often lacking to the single witch. Inasmuch as there are very few virgins around nowadays, we can virtually forget the attraction that such a witch could exert. Even the trappings of the virgin that are used in witchery, such as white and pink colors in clothing, must be combined with certain suggestive tricks that will lead to the impression that the wearer is sexually available. 
The fertile deities of the pagans were all transformed by one name or another into scarlet women, witches, and she-devils by the good Christians who wished to make it clear that chastity was a virtue. Therefore, it became the assumption that any woman who exuded sex was of the devil. Sex and the devil must therefore be extended to exemplify the witch as well. For centuries, we have associated the single girl with chastity and the married, divorced, or widowed woman with carnal knowledge. Such associations will not easily leave the mainstream of the unconscious. All of the traditional wedding pranks are directed toward one common goal, and that is the blatant proclamation that the demure young lady in the lacy white gown will soon be bouncing about in sexual abandon. No wonder the expression, blushing bride, was once such an apt description. The purient states of those who oogled the young woman as she would alight from the dusty Ford cope with the just-married sign and string of tin cans were bound to produce a crimson face, which, of course, only added even more to the lascivious effect. It was as if the poor girl was carrying a placard reading, I've been getting laid! Now that our social norms have been so radically changed, such phenomena have diminished. But their residue certainly persists. It is for this reason that the married woman, or one who has been married, possesses a sensual edge over the unmarried witch. The disadvantages of being married are obvious. A single witch is freer to engage in success-oriented enchantments, whereas the married witch must watch her step. The witch with the husband, who is either agreeable or out of the running, may, of course, use her witchery towards sexual ends. The siren, who is content with her husband, sexually speaking, but is career-minded, has a vast field of opportunity in which to employ her powers. The witch who is, as the last mentioned, sexually content with her spouse, but not inclined towards a career for herself, can become as the leg legendary sorceress behind the throne of her husband, the king. In this way, she can enchant those whom her husband could not emotionally reach. So you see, marriage is no handicap to witchery. In fact, there are examples that will be shown later in this book of how it actually pays to say you are married, even if you're not. Probably the greatest single disadvantage of the single witch is the often encountered desperation vibrations she throws off. No matter how smug and complacent she may appear to be in her unmarried role, she still carries the underlying stigma of the woman who hasn't been able to catch a man. The stigma that was once associated with witchcraft has been inverted into an intrigue. But the only one sexually positive inversion of the spinster syndrome is the recent rationale of being a swinger. It is wise for the unmarried witch who is well into her 20s to adopt this image, regardless of her personality type if she has the looks to match it. Choose an image. Whether a witch is married or single, she should discover the image she most naturally and effortlessly represents as a sort of home base. Everyone has a stereotype counterpart that turns up, whether in a movie, TV show, novel, comic strip, or other form of popular media. You owe it to yourself to ride on the coattails of the established visual image that most resembles you. We see this game played every time a popular female personality is emulated by multitudes of women. This is one she feels she can throw herself into. There is an old saying, if you have the devil's name, you should play the devil's game.
and people constantly give you clues to your proper image by telling you who or what you resemble, take it from there. If you're thin, with raven hair and dark eyes, and your face is rather long and angular, you should capitalize on the vampire theme and do all you can to hint at that image. If you find people always wanting to help you and take a protective attitude toward you, utilize a naive and innocent appearance and bearing to your advantage. If you have a mean look and attract meek men, then do all you can to look meaner. Be a veritable whip and leather type. If you're getting in on in years and have a nose like a potato with a body to match, don't kid yourself into thinking that a facial vacuum and losing 40 pounds would turn you into a seductress. Instead, get yourself a couple of cats, fill your house full of weird bric-a-brac, learn to make cookies, and let it be known you're a witch. Soon you'll have more worthwhile male friends than you ever would have had in your personality-less attempt at rejuvenation. If you're truly grotesque with a face that would stop ten clocks and a voice like a klaxon, turn yourself into a real hag monster and have fun scaring the hell out of people. In many instances, stereotypes are based on very real personality traits that are relevant to the appearance presented. Consequently, a witch who chooses an image most conductive to her ready-made appearance is likely to find her revealing in a very comfortable role. This doesn't mean that a witch must go through life playing only one role by the one that is represented by the the most appealing is often the one that is represented by the inner or hidden side of one's nature. We see this all the time in the large, dominant-looking, glamorous Amazon type who tries to act the part of a demure and native, naive little girl, especially when drunk. We also observe this in the frail-looking, helpless appearance, wide-eyed little creature who always seems to be yelling the loudest and stirring up the most trouble. These are both commonplace examples of unsuccessful witches whose lack of opportunity lies in their refusal to feed back, even temporarily, what their appearance implies. They are living counterparts to the old cliché. To look at her, you'd think she was, but just wait till she opens her mouth. True, there are times when it serves a witch well to disarm her quarry by acting completely different from what is expected of her, but these are specialized cases that will be discussed later in this book. The general rule is to become a package deal, thereby allowing the person you are bewitching to think that they have you all figured out. This may seem a bit dismal to you, who have assumed that a witchy type must always appear enigmatic, but I have observed that the most frustrated, unsuccessful witches are those who work at ambiguity rather than typecasting themselves. The only type of witch that can get away with an enigmatic image is the femme fatale, who has a naturally strange or unusual appearance. Needless to say, the type usually attempting the most mysterious image is the most unmysterious looking to start with. Choose an image that goes easiest with your outward appearance and take full advantage of all that has gone before to further establish that image. There is nothing wrong with being typecast if you can make it work for you. Natural versus acquired ability. Insofar as natural or inherited ability is concerned, the only truly built-in advantage a girl can possess is her looks. Looks mean everything, despite delusions to the contrary. 
A naturally good-looking girl has the best requirement possible for enchantment. This does not mean that an ordinary or even homely girl cannot be a successful witch. It simply implies that if a girl is pretty, she doesn't have to try as hard. This can be many a beautiful girl's downfall, though, as the plain girl has to learn to compensate for her lack of beauty by developing other talents. The most beautiful girls are seldom the stars of any show, but are relegated to the chorus. This is simply because the pretty girl sits back, being used to getting by on her looks, and takes advantage of only what comes along, and, as is often the cause, winds up more taken advantage of. The plainer girl, who depends on her wile, guile, artificial glamour, and assertiveness, invariably winds up in the spotlight. Whenever an accurate description has been able to be given of famous and legendary spellbinders throughout history, these women turn out to be simply slightly removed from the stereotyped standards of beauty, and in many cases, they were downright homely. If you are possessed of the kind of appearance that causes men to stop in their tracks, beware of the tendency to coast along witchcraft-wise on your astrological sign, latest Ouija uh, revelation, and neck pendant. You could very likely spend most of your life talking about what a great witch you are, having many bug-eyed male listeners, and accomplishing absolutely nothing other than an occasional fling in the sack with some guy who is going to just do great things for you. You may be sure of being propositioned all over the place, not because you are possessed of magical power, but simply because you are a sexy-looking girl. Naturally, an attractive woman will find doors open to her that more dowdy sisters must pay through the nose to enter. Every pretty girl is used to receiving favors, and if we are to be honest in recognizing the satanic laws of indulgence, it is understandable that she should receive favors. After all, by her very existence, she is bringing beauty of a visual nature into the life of the beholder, the type of beauty that, if it is accompanied by an undercurrent of sexual excitement, doubly adds to the pleasure reaction. In a sense, she is giving without even trying. So long as anything pleasant constitutes an indulgence, the viewer of the pretty girl will be indulged. Small wonder, then, that he reacts consciously by having to do something for the girl. This factor of physical appeal, then, is very important in bewitching. If it is at all possible to indulge whoever looks upon you with a treat that will obviate a reward, you must do so. In practical witchery, you must first command attention by your looks. Then, you should be able to create an, an enticement. If you can't entice the viewer into doing what you want, you must scare him into doing it. We'll cover that aspect in a later chapter. Right now, we'll concentrate on the importance of a pleasing appearance. Since life is a give-and-take proposition, we must play the game as such. But, as you know, there is often a lot more take than there is give. When a pretty girl gives simply by being a pretty girl, she subsequently takes when the little favor is bestowed by the nice man. In her often limited mind, she assumes her enchantment to them to be complete, not realizing that now it is her turn to give for a second time. Completely off guard because of the smugness engendered by her temporary conquest, she then is thrown into a situation where she is unmercifully taken advantage of by the nice man. It must be borne in mind that the element of sex appeal is not dependent on perfect face and body, lest many of my readers feel themselves falling short of the mark when it comes to physical perfection. 
The relative ingredient of what constitutes a pretty girl are seen in many forms, so long as beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We must ascertain a little about the beholder and his particular likes. The universally accepted standards of beauty are those based on certain curves, metric proportions and contours. These are the standards which constitute the naturally pretty girl. Through modification using makeup, clothing, fetishistic devices, etc., a girl who is less than perfect can sometimes out-perfect the natural beauty. Oh yes, one last rule before we get into the formulas. Never forget that you are a woman and the greatest power you can employ as a witch are totally dependent upon your own self-realization that in being a woman, you are different from a man and that very difference must be exploited. The extent to which you exploit your womanliness must always be in perfect balance with the lack of womanliness of the man you have chosen to be witch. How will you know this balance? The next chapter will show you. All right, so I'm sorry. I was in the middle of the chapter when all of this started going down. The video went out. Uh, I don't know if it's good now, but I'm going to pause my video and I'm going to restart it. So just hang tight. I'll be right back. I'm going to see if this ends up working. All right, so I'm hoping that I'm back. Uh, let me know if it's working or if it's not working. Uh, these chapters are, are long, so there's subsections to each of these chapters, but I'm just plowing through them. So if you have comments or thoughts while we're reading it, just put them in the notes in the, in the text and we'll try to get it to it in the chat there. Sorry, I'm starting to get in my throat. All right. I appreciate you guys sitting through some of this crap. I, it really bothers me when the internet does this sort of bullshit because... That's <laughs> right, Zachary. Um, <laughs> Stephanie. Because uh, the truth is I, I pay for, like, really fast internet. And my son, who's a massive gamer, has no problems with it. And I don't understand why it does it sometimes. But sometimes it does it. And so, we have to, yeah, it is. We have to live with it. Okay, sorry, I'm trying to get my throat back to normal before I start reading again. Uh, I do like that idea that simply because you're married doesn't mean that you can't be an effective witch. Um, and I like the idea that you don't have to be this perfect beauty in order to be an effective witch. You need to find what type you fit and this was referenced in the standard Bible as well. Um, the command to look, as it were. You need to find your command to look. So uh, for me, it is creating this vision of, you know, a, a button-up, church of Satan, Satanist guy uh, with a, you know, badass fucking fade. <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is uh, for me. Haircut and clothing and everything. Um, that's the command to look. And then it's the engaging with the individual, whether they're actively looking or they're trying to hide that they're looking. Um, and you being coy about it the whole time or you being aggressive toward it. Maybe you're, you're giving the mating signal right out and that scares away some types, but it's going to attract other types. You need to know who it is you're targeting 
and what they're about, and we're about to get into that in this chapter coming up, in order to properly manipulate anyone. And having the command to look is the first step, knowing your type. Um, some of the women who stand out in my mind from my life have been quite striking. Yeah, and like, here's the other th side of that. Um, I find myself, and this is not a statement about my wife <laughs> at all, because I think she's incredibly beautiful, and she is, and she's watching this, so this is going to sound shitty, but I don't mean it to be. I find myself very attracted to not the most beautiful type, because most women, uh, and it's been brought up in this, who are not just outwardly strikingly beautiful naturally, have to work a little bit at it. Or they have to work at their personality, or their sense of humor, or their interactiveness, or their connections with other human beings, or just themselves so much more that I find that much more interesting. The naturally beautiful woman, uh, I'm just, <laughs> I don't know. It's laziness, in my opinion. It's just, uh, you know, my personal experience. So if you got something off about you, I think that's probably much better for you in the long run. I know as a kid in middle school, it's going to be a fucking nightmare. <laughs> but once you get out of high school and you start realizing that uh, the other men and women have gotten out of high school too, mentally, you're going to be able to dominate them if you can master yourself first. It's just sort of basic stuff. I don't know. What about you guys in the chat room? Are you more attracted to flawed human beings or to seemingly perfect human types i think it's interesting because i was watching the witcher and fucking uh, henry cavill is like this perfect human type and i'm madly attracted to that dude so maybe i'm just full of shit <laughs> i don't know who knows all right should we get into this should we do some more since no one's saying anything I don't know what that means. Sapiosexual. We gotta look that up. Alright. Alright, people. This is where it gets. <laughs> We're about to dive in deep here, okay? Because what we had talked about so far has been surface level stuff. We're getting into the nitty gritty of the personality types now. So this is where you're going to either decide to go along for the ride with the Stanic Witch, or you're going to throw it out whole cloth. Because some of the information coming up here is going to challenge you. Especially certain types of people. So, if you're not open-minded, be prepared to have an opinion <laughs> really quickly. I think you're absolutely right, dog. <clears throat> All right. Oh. Chapter two, knowing yourself and others. The real you. In order to properly analyze or size up an individual you plan to bewitch, 
it is imperative that you understand certain rules. For the purposes of witchcraft, one should conceive of each person having two personalities, the one everyone sees and the one that he carries within him. Actually, these two personalities can be broken down into three layers, the outer layer being the cover by which the others tell the book, and the inner layer, the so-called true personality. There is a third layer, however, that is sadly neglected, always there and always apparent. The reason it is not readily noticed is because it is all too visible, much like the old saying about not being able to see the forest for the trees. This third personality represents the inner core, the reversion to type, and it is a direct reflection of the characterization which is seen on the surface or the first layer. Let us therefore consider the first and third layers to be the same, with a big layer of padding between them, which makes up the second. This second layer is the other side, or our nature, of our nature. The woman within each man, the alter ego, the dark side of our nature, etc. It is also the part of the personality you must learn to recognize in every person you plan to bewitch. Figure 1 shows what it can be likened to, for example, in a short, fat man. As you can see from the diagram, layer number 2 takes the form of a tall, slender, slim-hipped woman. If our short, fat man were to have a best friend, it would be another man who was tall and slender with a personality totally unlike his own. Put a wig and a dress on the tall, skinny friend, and you'll get a pretty good hint at what the wife or girlfriend of the fat man will be like. Have you ever noticed how a man's best friend will always be his opposite in appearance? The women you have always had as your best friends have been opposites of your own appearance, haven't they? If you are extremely pretty, your best friend was always the one you found yourself trying to convince others of accepting as beautiful even though they couldn't see it. If you are an active type, you will attract quiet people. If you are quiet, you will gravitate towards energetic types. In short, the reason opposites attract is because we need those opposites to make ourselves whole. However badly we may need this opposite of ourselves, though, there will always be a two-to-one victory for the outer and inner, the number one and three layers of our personality. This great overbalance, which I shall call the majority self, is the one that will always come through when the chips are down. This is the reversion to type, and the appearance, personality, and general impression we present to others at first glance. To sum this up, when dealing with men and women as a general rule, you can tell a book by its cover. In the practice of witchery, however, you must appeal to the other's need to express and exercise the second layer of his personality. This is the side of his nature that is the seldom fulfilled and therefore always hungry. An old phrase, once popular in underworld circles, is, Treat a slut like a lady and a lady like a slut. This is all well and good, and might be considered a profound simplification of what I have been saying, but it stops only halfway through the formula, as many destitute gigolos and altruistic reformers have discovered. The reason this old vulgarism is only half true is because of the final analysis, 
The lady will regain her decorum and become mawkishly indignant, and the slut will be discovered in one of the upstairs bedrooms away from the rest of the elegant revelers, her Dior gown up around her hips, on one guest on top and two more waiting outside the door. A complete variant of the previous cliché for witches to remember is treat a bum like a prince and a prince like a bum, a little boy like a big man and a big man like a little boy, a professor like a prize fighter and a prize fighter like a professor. But don't ever let the bum forget he's a bum, the prince a prince, the little boy still a little boy, etc. when you begin your enchantment. Always approach your quarry with his second or minority self in mind. This means that you can approach him as an outsider who will treat him in the manner that his minority self craves, or you can be his minority self in female form. Returning to our previous formula, instead of treating the bum like a prince and worrying about holding his ego down to its proper level for control, leave his majority self as it is and you appear as a princess. If your subject is a captain of industry, a leading finance financier, a big newspaper publisher, you should come on like a domestic, a counter girl, a dancer in the chorus. If he is a Casper milk, milk toast who holds a petty clerk job, appear as an efficient businesswoman and give the impression that everything revolves around you in the office. If your target is a highly intellectual academician, Academian. <laughs> Present yourself as a rather brassy, flashy, filly, flashy filly with more heart than brains. If he happens to be a real swinger with Italian silk suits and a fat address book, appear as an intrigued but naive small town librarian. Get the idea? That minority self, which you must represent, doesn't stop at personality types but is readily observable in the very physique and movements Kretschmer have helped a great deal by their classifications of body and personality types. Sheldon defined human physique in three basic categories, ectomorph or thin, cerebral and straight up and down, mesomorph or wedge-shaped, practical and broad shoulders, and endomorph or roly-poly, social and broad-hipped. From these basic classifications, Sheldon defined literally hundreds of subclassifications, all variants of the three basic types. Kretschmer used the same fundamental typing, except he called them leptosome, athletic, and picnic. Or picnic. The method I've used for convenience through this book, I call the Levet Personality Synthesizer. By studying the almost limitless areas of human behavior and correspondences, I have arrived at certain capsulizations of human personality. Aside from the previously mentioned researchers, I have observed most of my subjects in their natural habitat. My gleanings have been obtained not as an accredited psychologist or sociologist, but rather as a devil's advocate, who has spent the better part of his professional life in concert halls, bar rooms, police work, carnivals, wild animal training, photography, clinical hypnosis, ghost chasing, burlesque shows, amusement parks, art studios, revival meetings, advancing the cause of Satanism, and just plain looking. I've conducted what sociologists might call an unfunded research project. Much of what I have synthesized in my sometimes overly scattered pursuits 
will to many readers appear utterly mad, ridiculous, and outrageous, much as based on the scientific evaluation of others. Perhaps even more will be condemned as having no known or accredited scientific basis. Fine. All I know is it works. And if it works, I don't knock it. If some of my nutty theories you read in this book work for you, you're ahead of the game. I only present them for what I have found they can do when applied. The LeVay Personality Synthesizer Every human type has its corresponding personality traits and, as you can see, occupies a position on the circle that can approximate the numbers on a clock. In order to simplify things, we will use this clock numbering system when referring to the types we will be discussing throughout the book. See the end papers of the book for a diagram of the synthesizer. Therefore, if mention is made of a two-clock type, you will know that the person is halfway between a mesomorph and an octomorph type. I am not adhering to the typing systems of Kretschmer and Sheldon completely, because to do so would eliminate much of the far-reaching opportunities for a quick and easy analysis this method will allow. Before we go farther, the most important rule in using this method of analysis must be stated. The demonic element in everyone is manifested in the choice of a mate. Once you have found the person whom you wish to bewitch on the chart, you must do your utmost to portray that person directly opposite your subject. You can test the authenticity of the chart by simply observing people you know and their choice of a mate. Wherever you find a difficult relationship between two people, especially of opposite sexes, you'll notice there are close together on the chart rather than opposite each other. The classifications that can be defined are limited only by the short-sightedness of the witch. Using this typing system, more can be told about a given person than with any other method ever devised. 12 o'clock represents the pure masculine counterpart of the 6 o'clock feminine. Inasmuch as these types can be likened to Adam and Eve, the satyr and the nymph, etc. Very few individuals will find themselves right on those marks, as will be seen. We will not judge so much by the three basic classifications, but rather by gradations closer related to four quarters of the circle. 12, 3, 6, and 9. These four points have personality affinities with the elements of fire, air, water and earth, and their colors, red, blue, green, and yellow. In employing this synthesis, one will find the more it is used, the more strictly related elements of personality will be seen running concurrent with each type on the clock. predominantly masculine types in feminine bodies and vice versa. If you have been born a woman and happen to be in the top extreme of the clock, it indicates you are dominant in your nature and your core takes the form of a male rather than a female person. Here is where we run into a problem if we allow it to exist. The same situation in reverse occurs in men who fall into the extreme lower half of the clock. Let us say that the upper half represents the ideal masculine core, while the lower half represents the ideal core in a female. Thus, the three layers of personality in a 12 o'clock woman would look like figure two. 
To simplify matters, we can say that the 12 o'clock woman will search for, or rather be searched for, by a 6 o'clock man and will invariably wind up with one, whether she wants him or not. The fact that she is still carrying about with her a woman's body necessitates an even greater search for a man who is stronger than she, so that she can really feel like a woman. Naturally, this is a pretty big order to fill, as she is already occupying a 12 o'clock position on the clock. If a 12 o'clock female who is used to passive men fawning all over her selects an extremely dominant man, one who is even more dominant than herself, she cannot expect such a man to fall in love with her, despite her temporal needs for such a man, because in order for that very temporal passivity need to be fulfilled, the dominant man would by nature reject her. Then the 12 o'clock gal moans and wails and the more dominant than herself man is not returning her raging love. She is often too stupid to realize that his very rejection of her indicates his dominance over her without which there could be no attraction towards him in the first place. Thus, she would no longer be dependent upon her stronger man but in control of the situation, as is her usual standard when dealing with her panting suitors. If, however, she can step aside temporarily from her blind desires and realize her needs to suffer run concurrent with the rejection she experiences from her brutal and callous love object, then, and only then, will she become self-realized. The parallel to this situation is the six o'clock man, see figure three. Who secretly desires a woman he can boss around when he finally finds such a dormouse she is so totally like himself in personality and physical typing that he cannot become enthusiastic about her but continues to long for dominion over a girl of his dreams who as you might suspect is of a type totally unprepared to see any dominant qualities in such a man on the contrary his dream girl will always be that most dominant woman who holds him in thrall not a type who is identical to himself, but even more subservient. Then he finds himself tied up in knots and enslaved, as usual, by the kind of woman he bemoans not being able to boss about. Little does this unknowing man realize that it is his very pattern to need a dominant woman, and when that woman ceases to dominate him, he will automatically drift to a new whip mistress who can. Here we have discussed two types of human beings who, being usually unaware of their true nature, go through life complaining about their unrequited love, invariably to none other than those individuals who become the sometimes disdainful objects of their desires. Unfortunately, if their caterwaulings are long and loud enough, and their love objects are nice enough, even though dominant by nature, a very curious phenomenon develops. The dominant love object, in attempting to keep peace and divert grave traumas on the part of his or her suitor becomes literally vampirized by the weaker person. Thus, it becomes a situation wherein the master finds himself fast becoming the slave, but without the benefits of such an arrangement. And the newly developed slave has not based his or her choice of a master upon any natural sexual or mental attractions. Temperament. Going back to the synthesizer clock, as we start at one o'clock, we find the person who is dominant by nature, didactic, and with an inquiring mind, becoming even more mental as two o'clock approaches. 
With two, however, some of the social affabilities diminish, and by the time three is reached, we can find an inclination towards haughtiness and cynicism. These people are less agreeable when it comes to accepting anything at face value and are seldom joiners. As they are thinkers rather than doers, there are few absolutes in their lives. Consequently, these three and four o'clock types are the most mystical and abstract in their thoughts. If their demonic element is allowed to express itself, however, though a through a non-human vehicle such as poetry, music, art, great works can be accomplished. Genius dwells within the four o'clock type more often than in the other, and the typical egghead is a pure four o'clock. Five o'clock types are less abstract and more practical and have the quality of being able to stick with things providing the going doesn't get too rough. For this reason, they are admirably suited to office roles and clerical work. Steady and dependable, they have the flexibility necessary to keep going day after day. Even more consistent is the six o'clock person. In fact, he is the most consistent on the clock. Devotion to cause and duty is the hallmark of the six o'clock type, and he takes great pride in his promptness. These are the men who stay on the job for so long that everything in the firm depends on their presence. These are the women who stay with husbands that other women on the clock would discard. If a six o'clock man stays, strays from his wife, you may be sure it is another woman's fault, invariably one from the top of the clock. Seven o'clock persons retain much of the qualities of the six, but with more social inclinations, and by the time eight is reached, the emphasis is on doing rather than thinking. The eight and nine o'clock types have little use for hair-splitting debate and will most likely interject a humorous comment whenever the going gets too serious. The most agreeable and socially likable eights and nines give up some of those qualities and the ten o'clock type, but still have the monopoly. By the time ten is reached, the assertive temperament of the top half of the cloth clock is brought to bear. The need to dominate presents itself, and affability is often sacrificed. The ten o'clock type has no use for eggheads, but ironically his best buddy is probably a slightly shallow four o'clock whose introspection is overlooked by the ten o'clock. Likewise, his wife is probably a not-too-domestic slender four o'clock girl who does his thinking for him. Eleven o'clocks are the stereotyped he-men whose authoritarian natures are only excelled by the twelve o'clock who must be the head man in whatever he does, either constantly or at least periodically. Therefore, authority positions are filled by 12 o'clocks who, because of their needs to be noticed, are always the pioneers in any new undertaking. Whatever they start, it is up to good 6 o'clock men to keep it running. Skin and Flesh Tone Insofar as skin and flesh textured are concerned, the firmest and most dense tone is found between 10 and 2 o'clock. Proceeding towards 3, we encounter greater translucency of skin and sinewy muscle development covered by softer flesh. As we move downwards towards 5, we find increasing with 6 and 7 the extremely soft marshmallow flesh which is characterized in women of small lumps and dimples on the buttocks and thighs even when young. Moving round to 8 o'clock, we find the flesh more resilient and bouncy. As 9 o'clock, teddy bear qualities toughen up to 10 o'clock, we find ourselves back where we started, observing girls with tawny, firm-fleshed, and oft-times huge bosoms. 
This It is the slim-hipped, big-breasted, and seemingly unattainable, yet compelling to great numbers of men. Girl of this category that is most often seen in the centerfold of certain men's magazines, not particularly noted for yielding sexual propensities of its female employees. General Proportions Starting at 12, we find broad shoulders and back, large rib cage, but not necessarily large breasts in women. If the breasts are large, the chest will be also. In a woman who is 5'8", one may find a 42-inch bust with a B cup, whereas the 3 o'clock girl might have a 35-inch bust with a D cup. This is because the basic frame of the 12 o'clock woman is wedge-shaped, while the 3 o'clock straightens out. Slim hips will be seen on both men and women of this category, in fact, the slimmest on the clock. In keeping with the wedge shape, the proportions will be overbalanced on the top half of the body so that the person is seated, he will always appear taller than he is. Seen from the waist down, they will always appear shorter. They are often extremely long-waisted and short-legged. The reason it is easy to assume them to be athletic types is because, especially in men, they have the fa uh, facility of always being able to pull their stomachs in and look as though they've been exercising very rigorously. Actually, the majority of real athletes fall into the 2 to 4 and 8 to 10 positions, depending on their choice of sport. To the right of 12, we find the chest becomes narrower, but just as deep. To the left of 12, the chest becomes shallower, but sometimes wider. If 12 o'clock people gain weight, it will show first in the torso rather than the legs. They gain manifesting itself in the belly and gluteal regions, but not readily noticeable, except in profile. As we move towards 1 o'clock, the chest narrows, but the time 3 is reached, the torso is shortened proportionally and the legs lengthened. The field of fashion models draws from this category, as the women occupying it are almost straight up and down with a slim tendency to be slimmer below than above. Weight is not easily gained, and the nervous temperament burns up calories fast. If any weight should be gained or lost, it will be immediately noticed in the face, with a few scant pounds making the difference between a sunken, drawn look or a puffy appearance. The four o'clock has virtually no waist, and when tall, the traditional beanpole. If the shoulders are to be broadened, the chest enlarged, the biceps developed, it must be through exercise in those particular areas, for the frame itself is not conductive to such enlargement. Hence, the compensation of the 97-pound weakling stigma often results in some very grotesque muscle development resembling balloon-like appendages. The solitary nature of most three and four o'clocks is certainly conductive to the needed hours spent in gymnasiums, on teeter boards, jogging, rowing, cycling, etc. As we round the bottom of the clock, weight starts to develop without trying, and at five o'clock, care must be taken to keep weight off. By this point of the clock, the strict, the stick-like verticals have bulged at the sides, forming an ellipse with the ideal lunar or vensuan form at the six o'clock position. Narrow shoulders, wide hips and thighs, long legs, and short torso characterize the perfect six o'clock. If mermaids lived, they would all be six o'clocks, for they are as much synonymous with the fluidic quality of the six as the twelve is forged in fire. Crab-like, the six o'clock is flat and wide. The abdomen and buttocks often disproportionately 
proportionately flat in comparison to the width of the pelvic area. Astrologers would be quick to call this the pure Cancerian type. The first place to gain weight and the last place to lose it are the outer upper thighs. Even with excess weight, however, the waist can still be sucked in disproportionately owing to natural tendency towards abdominal flatness, uh, abdominal flatness, which is a holdover from the beanpole four o'clocks, or if you prefer to come round from the other direction, a loss of stuffing from the sausage eight o'clocks. As seven o'clock approaches, we see a bit more protruding coming from the rear end and tummy, and by eight o'clock, the torso has thickened, the waist lengthened, the legs shortened until we see our teddy bear nine o'clock. His solid body is usually accompanied by a face which is inclined towards rotundity. In fact, eight and nine o'clocks will always enjoy the food and must fight to stay slim. They gain weight in the legs, torso, in fact, just about all over. And the last place they will ever lose weight will be in the face. If a jovial round 830 type man dropped from 250 to 140 pounds, his face would look like uh, would look little changed, even though he now resembles a lollipop. The solid, husky fullback is often a nine o'clock, and if he can avoid eating his own food when he opens his restaurant after, he res after his retirement from football, he might still look good at 50. The eight and nine o'clock gals are the type Kretschmer, Kretschmer used to glorify as the real woman. Pikenick types the most earthy farm stock, socially gregarious, PTA-going, Q-pie doll with round hips, round breasts, round bottom, in short, round all over, fits this classification. Years ago, Esquire magazine published an edifying article attesting to the fact that pikenicks are more fun. By the time we reach 10 o'clock, the hips have slimmed, the shoulders widened, the legs shortened, and the playboy princess appears on the horizon with her counterpart, King Kong, holding her in his arms. Sexual Proclivities The woman most prone to stereotyped lesbian activities is the 12 o'clock. The man most likely to fit the established image of the homosexual is the 6 o'clock. All types, however, have their respective homosexual counterparts. This simply implies that a 12 woman and a 6 man are ideally suited for sexual interchange and often are transsexuals. When a sex change operation is performed, it is most complete and successful in these individuals. 6 o'clock professional female impersonators are the rule, whereas the closet queen transvestite usually appears in the secret practices of the 11 o'clock truck driver or 12 o'clock movie idol, who couldn't look more ridiculous in his sequined cocktail dressed in spike heels. The most sexually receptive persons fall between 5 and 9. The most aggressive in their sex drives are between 9 and 1. These are also the most openly exhibitionistic in a flagrant and contrived manner. Because they are social by nature, they want to be noticed more than the others on the clock. The least sensual types are between 1 and 5 o'clock. The most successful and frigid prostitutes are from 1 and 2 o'clock. The person most likely to perform sex for spiritual enlightenment, protest, or not at all, 
is the three or four o'clock. Here we find the typical hippie, with clothes carefully chosen to either conceal the figure completely or render it as unappealing as possible to all except others in the same peer group. Old beatnik and older bohemian types have always striven to find the latest style in burlap, war surplus, Indian blankets, etc. for their apparel. Men of this group are the latest concerned about sexual attraction by way of clothing, yet, understandably, people who fall into this category will be the first to show their freedom by taking off all their clothes. 75% of the people you see featured in nudist magazines or girly pictorials slow showing indelicately exposed genitalia are in this section of the clock. When the five to nine is exposed, it is because he is drunk and doesn't know his pants are unzipped. The woman in the five to nine group always seems to have a way of exposing themselves without really trying and are experts in the art covered by this chapter, Secrets of Indecent Exposure. <clears throat> to simplify matters, it all boils down to this. When it comes to sex, nine to ones do it because they want to, one to fives do it for a purpose, and five to nines do it because they can't help it. Here are some additional pointers. The man who is the typical conventioner who seeks out play-for-pay gals is the eight or nine o'clock type and is usually the best salesman. Naturally, the gals who will accommodate him will be pros from the two or three o'clock grouping, unless he should find a social-minded street walker from the 10 o'clock group. Of course, she won't be nearly as appealing as she is closer to his own type. As a last resort, the visiting sales manager might even take a tipsy 7 o'clock housewife who is out from Madison, Wisconsin, visiting her sister. She's staying at the same hotel as he and, not tired enough to go to sleep, stepped into the cocktail lounge as she walked through the lobby. After downing one drink, she was well on her way to losing her inhibitions. The next day, she felt terribly ashamed of herself, and he felt it was okay, but he could have done better. The fact that the five to nine o'clock girl is the most submissive sexually gives the long-legged fluidic six and seven o'clocks the best swivel-hipped dance movement. Ballerinas who are on a more aesthetic plane move closer to five o'clock. The stiff and contorted spasms engaged in by modern dancers is exemplified by the three and four o'clocks. Their lack of carnal sexuality is shown in their dance movements, which, in keeping with the air influence, are of a flying nature. The body remains relatively motionless, while the arms and legs flail about, sometimes resembling attempts to fly, sometimes to thrust away the attacker, sometimes appearing as violent protest and always implying a fleeing to freedom. Contrast this with the erotic dance forms taken by the other long-legged dancers who occupy the lower half of the clock. If three and four wish to repeal, uh, repel sexual advances and fly away, not so with eight and nine. These wiggly earthworms will be inclined to hold their arms close to the body, limit their leg thrashings, and rotate their bodies like mad. The arm and hand movements will imply a pulling in and clutching too, and in keeping with the earth influences, the dancer often resembles a groundhog digging in. Because the six o'clock is the longest legged and comprises a swimming compromise between the flying of the four and the digging of the eight, she will often steal the show. The most perfect female sexually interpretive dance forms have been those best performed by six o'clock through the ages. The Hawaiian hulu, uh, hula, 
and the Near Eastern notch or belly dance are prime examples. The most proficient exponents I have ever seen in the grass skirts and finger cymbal school of dance, as well as bump and grind artistry, have been almost pure six o'clocks. When we move up to the top half of the clock, we find the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak when it comes to dance forms as we know them. Being on the masculine half of the circle gives one more of an ability to strut rather than dance. It is for this reason that drum majorettes are usually 10 and 11 clocks who do a great job with the baton and let's give the little lady a big hand. When one of them tires of the Grange Hall and goes to the city to get a da job dancing in a topless club, as those large-chested types often do, she invariably is much more appreciated for her mammaries than her movements. The 12 o'clock, which would best stay off the dance floor but confine her rhythmic motions to jungle priestess routines where her leopard skins and whip will be appreciated. The worst natural dancers, who are usually wise enough not to try, are the cerebrally inclined, short-legged, antisocial one and two o'clocks. Incidentally, the higher up on the clock you are, the rougher time you'll have coping with your periods. Also, the more you will be unfavorably influenced by the full moon. The lower you are on the clock, the better you will function during a full moon. Sense of humor. The degrees and types of humor are governed a great deal by the position one holds on our clock. Those with the highest developed sense of humor dwell within the 8 to 10 o'clock sector. These people can truly enjoy a funny situation without an analyzing it. The most dour and humorless types are those on the two or four. Whenever we see a comedian who uses comedy as a vehicle for bitter social criticism, he falls into this classification. The most responsive audiences are the five to nine types. Nine to ones must be able to identify themselves with the performer before they can appreciate him. And one to fives spend more time analyzing what is before them than experiencing it. Almost all critics are one to five types. Famous comedy teams like Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, etc., are usually two eight or three nine relationships. I'm going to stop there because sweet hell, <laughs> this is becoming a chore. Woo. All right, almost two hours in. We have covered a whole lot. This personality synthesizer section, knowing yourself and others. It's a lot to take in. I mean, and here's the thing. This is based on the doctor's observations. Uh, you got to take it with uh, tongue in cheek. I mean, you have to, because the truth is you have to be able to define yourself through these different sections, um, but not be confined by them. And you have to be able to target your, um, you have to be able to identify your targets by these sections, but not be limited by them. So, you know, it's, in my opinion, the broader brush you are using to make your strokes, the better. The more specific you're getting, the more detailed you're getting, you're going to start to lose people. Um, I mean, he made straight up statements about homosexual and transsexuals in types on the in, at different positions on the clock 
I don't know about all of you, but I've seen some people fit those types and I've seen people break those types. And so it's sort of the way I like to approach this synthesizer, um, the LeVay synthesizer clock is um, extremely broadly and not to limit it uh, to conventions. And that's just how it works for me. I don't know. Uh, do you guys get really bogged down in the minutia uh, that I've been reading through for the past 30 minutes? Or do you also take a broader stroke, broader brush with this? Um, I think it's interesting. I don't know. My throat is kind of killing me at this point. And I got to be honest with you. I'm a little bit bummed about this feed. I'm bummed that it's not streaming as consistently as I was hoping it would. I'm bummed that my throat is so worn out after just under two hours because it really does hurt. <laughs> uh, because we've got a lot of really great content coming up. So I hope you guys are going to tune in next time with me while we uh, continue our way through the Stanic Witch. I think this is the heaviest chapter. I mean, the most convoluted and you know confusing chapter after this it starts to get more broad and more interesting and, and a little bit more fun but you have to know this section because this is going to help you identify who you are as a person and help you decode others that you're witnessing walking around on the planet and that's really important when it comes to exercising lesser magic practicing lesser magic employing lesser magic it's essential really and so we do have to get through this, um, but not in a rushed way, but in a cognizant way. And that's what we're going to do. So, uh, yeah, dude, I didn't even dive in at all to the eugenics section of this in the opening statement uh, by Xena. But there's some broad strokes there that I absolutely, uh, I think, are interesting and worth having a conversation about, but it's outside of the context of these videos. So we're going to have to figure something else out for some other time. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, I do really do appreciate you uh, sitting through these and interacting. It's honestly, it is the interaction why I do any of these. Otherwise, I would just blindly read through it and I wouldn't do a, a video component at all. And it would just be me reading a book and having a good time within myself. Um, but I like hearing what you guys have to say and what you think and um, your reactions to my ridiculous mispronunciation of words. <laughs> Dude, when you get in a pattern of reading, sometimes you stumble. And all you can do is correct yourself and move on if you catch it. And if you don't catch it, next time, try your best to get it right. <laughs> but I'm as fallible a reader as anyone out there. <laughs> so I really appreciate you guys uh, sitting through it. That's going to do it, though. Uh, again, sign up to the email list because that will tell you when the next show is going to be. Uh, the next um, reading is going to be, not next show because I don't have shows anymore. Um, I have a anniversary coming up in February. That is going to be the ninth year since I started Nine Cents Podcast. And for those of you who know Nine Cents Podcast, you know there's a little bit of wordplay there. But for those who aren't familiar with Nine Cents Podcast, that is the first satanic project I ever created. Arguably the most successful <laughs> And because I had a lot of other contributors to it, and it was not just me. It was a lot of fun for a lot of years, and I had a great time. And so right now, the Nine Cents Podcast Archive on YouTube is up, and it's going to stay up. Um, 
I'm working my way through uh, updating some of the cards and end screens of them because they're all out of date. But if you want to relive any time in Nine Cents history, now's the time to do it. And there's a lot of information and there are hundreds of episodes um, with people from administration of the Church of Satan to just random dudes who just happen to have a passion um, that I talk to. There's contributors that cover um, philosophy. They cover religious studies. They cover um, politics. They cover sexuality. They cover comedy. Um, it gets deep, and we go all over the place, and that's what made it so wonderful. So if you have a chance, explore that Nine Cents podcast archive because it was a lot of fun to make for those years. A lot of pain in the ass, too, which is why I stopped it. And, um, you know, I don't know. New year, new thoughts, new projects, new works. We'll see what happens, everyone. Well, until next time, thank you guys so much for joining me. Hail Satan. Have a fucking fantastic new year. And be the best version of you who cares the least about what others think as possible. Hail Satan.